The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Take your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 12, continuing our trip through the book of Exodus, and we come to the tenth and final plague of the series of ten plagues that God ordained to persuade Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let God's people go. And as we come to Exodus 12, we come to the establishment of the Passover. Jesus testified in John chapter 5 that the Jews, the unbelieving Jews' accuser would be Moses on whom their hopes were set. And then he testified very plainly that Moses, this is what he said, Moses wrote about me. What an interesting thing to say. And I think as we come to Exodus 12, I think it's well for us to consider that this is one of the times that Moses wrote about Jesus. As Christians, we should see a direct connection between the establishment of the Passover the very first Passover and then the ongoing ritual that the Jews observed after that and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I was considering and meditating on one specific aspect of Scripture and that was in John 19 as Jesus was up on the cross. The time came, the order had gone out based on the Jewish regulation that there be no work on the Sabbath that the bones of the three suffering victims on the cross be shattered and the uh, death hasten in that way so that they could be buried before sundown and before the Passover began. And so they came to the first and shattered his legs and they came to the third on the other side and shattered his legs but when they came to Jesus they found that he was already dead. And this was an astonishment to Pilate. When he heard that Jesus was dead already, he was amazed. This is the whole point with crucifixion, is that it takes a long time to die. And for him to be dead after three hours is, is remarkable. But you see, the atoning work was finished. And Jesus declared it to be finished. He said, it is finished. And with that, the Greek says, he pillowed his head on his chest and gave up the spirit. He just died. He has absolute control over his death. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down freely of myself. I have the authority to do that. Not one of us does. He did. He had the authority to just give up his spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so he died at the right time, at precisely the right time. Because at that time, Jewish experts will tell us, at that time, the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. The timing's incredible. At that moment, the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. And so also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world died at that precise moment. And so the soldiers came with mallets in their hand to Jesus to shatter his legs. But they didn't need to because he was already dead. And John said, and so the scripture was fulfilled, not a bone will be broken. That comes from Exodus chapter 12. Moses wrote about Jesus. And we have therefore in this Passover regulation a clear portrayal of the death, the atoning death of Jesus Christ. We have his blood shed over us as a protective canopy so that the wrath of God would not come down upon us. And if we stand under that blood, the blood of our Passover lamb who sacrificed for us, as we stand under that blood, we are protected 
from the wrath of God. And there is no other place of protection, only the blood of Jesus Christ. So we come now to the uh, 12th chapter of Exodus and the Passover, the regulations, and the completion of the plagues that God ordained for Egypt. Now, this is a long chapter. It basically breaks up into five sections. The first, from verse 1 through 11, are the commands from the Lord given to Moses, commands from the Lord concerning the Passover. The second section, uh, from verse uh, 12 through, uh, sorry, 20, 21 through 28, are the commands from Moses. And this is the atonement accomplished and applied by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the commands given through Moses. So first the Lord gave his commands uh, to Moses, and then Moses gave the commands uh, to the people. The third in verse 29 and 30 is the actual statement of the plague on the firstborn, the historical record of that tenth plague as it actually occurred. The fourth section is the beginning of the Exodus, verse 31 through 41, and what I call the expulsion from Egypt as Pharaoh at last saw the light and said, you may go, not only you may go, you must go. And so he expelled them from Egypt. And then finally, the fifth section, the lasting ordinance for Israel, from verse 42 to the end of the chapter, an establishment of the Passover regulation for all time. And so in this entire chapter, we have not only a historical event in the Old Covenant, but a clear portrayal and a picture of the exodus that Jesus Christ would accomplish for us spiritually through the shedding of his blood. Now let's look at the beginning, the commands from the Lord, the Passover regulations at verses 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb each uh, amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Stop there. These are the Passover regulations that God gave right from the start to Moses. These are commands given from the Lord, the regulations for that very, very first Passover. But they would set a pattern also for the ongoing uh, observance of this ritual throughout the history of Israel in the Old Covenant. Now, it begins with the establishment of a new calendar. It is said this day, this month, the first day of this month is the beginning of your year. So time starts now. Just as for Christians, we divide the time into B.C. and A.D. with the coming of Jesus Christ. So for the Jews, this Passover is the beginning of their calendar, the start of their year, a new calendar for them. 
And with the establishment of that calendar came also the uh, final days of Pharaoh and uh, of his rule over the Jews. It was basically down to two weeks now. Ten days after that first day, they were to select a lamb. Fourteen days after that first day, on the second week, 14 days, they were to slaughter that lamb. And that night, the tenth plague would come. So Pharaoh basically has two weeks to repent. Two weeks in order to change his heart. But he won't, because the Lord is hardening his heart so that this tenth and final plague will accomplish. Now, why is there a delay from the tenth to the fourteenth day? During that time, the people are to take care of this lamb. They're to bring it into their house, and for four days, they're to look after it. That's what it says. Take care of the lamb. Become attached to it. Get to know it. Let it be kind of in your home. There will be a connection between the family and the lamb, a kind of an identification. Later on, this kind of identification would be made clear when the priest would put his hands on the head of the sacrifice. A clear identification between the people and their sins and the sacrifice. But there's a four-day period in which the family is to take care of the lamb. And I think it must be for the purpose of identification. So also, Jesus Christ lived among us a perfect and sinful life. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen him, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who is from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus could have come down to earth and suffered and died in one day and been raised on the third day and gone back up. But many scriptures would not be fulfilled. And neither would this, I think, type of Christ, namely that there would be a time in which the sacrificial lamb would make his way around the people, make his dwelling with the people, fulfilled in John chapter 1, verse 14. So Jesus would live a, a full life, a sinless life in their midst, and there would be uh, observance and a time of, in a way, connection, an opportunity for John the Baptist to point and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so for four days they would care for it. Then they would sacrifice it. Now, the amount of lamb that would be selected would be in proportion to what each person would eat. Now, I don't know how they assess or gauge what each person will eat, probably track record. But they look at each individual and say, he'll eat this much and he'll eat that much, and there's going to be a kind of an accounting for how much each will eat. The idea is that you're going to eat your fill. You're going to have a full meal on this lamb. It's not just going to be a small piece, a ceremonial piece, much like perhaps we celebrate the Lord's Supper with a tiny, tiny piece of bread. It wouldn't be like that. There would be a feast. There would be a, a, a filling up of the lamb. You would eat it. You would partake of this lamb. I think this also fulfills what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 51 and following. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now this is a brutally offensive teaching that Jesus gave in John 6 because another law of Moses said you must never eat the animal with its blood. The blood is a sacrifice and it's to be poured out. But Jesus is saying there must be, in some sense, an eating. There must be, I think, what it means is a full 
personal participation in the sacrifice. A direct connection, an eating, a taking in of the sacrifice. It's not just a ritual. In the end, Christ, the fulfillment, must be taken into you by faith. Jesus says later in John 6, my words are, are spirit and they are life. And so he's speaking spiritually as he does when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not a physical birth that we're talking about here. Still less is it the Roman Catholic transubstantiation and the mass and all that. It's not that at all. It means a complete total identification with the Passover sacrifice, with his death, with his blood. That is me. I deserve to die. The lamb died so I wouldn't. A total identification. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Total identification with the sacrifice. Well, this was, I think, prefigured in a shadow sort of sense by eating the Passover lamb. And so there had to be a calculation of how much each would eat. They must also apply the blood. The blood had to be applied to the house. It wasn't enough for the blood to be poured out. But it had to be taken, a hyssop, a bushy kind of plant had to be taken and dipped into the blood and it had to be painted on the door frame. Verse 7, they are to take some of the blood and, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. The blood had to be personally applied. And, and the, the avenging angel moving across would look down and he would see the blood. And he would pass over. So the blood had to be personally applied or there could be no deliverance. There were also instructions about cooking. The lamb had to be roasted as a sacrifice. There had to be, as Eric talked about earlier, our worship would, would waft up into the nostrils of God. And so also it was in the time of Noah when he came off. God smelled the burnt offering and he was pleased. There was a sense of an aroma going up to him, which you don't get with boiling. Certainly wouldn't get if it was eaten raw. And so it's not to be eaten raw, it's not to be boiled. But there's to be a roasting and, and, and there's an offering in a sense going up to God. An offering to God. And then finally, it is to be eaten in haste. You're to have your cloak tucked up in your belt. You're supposed to be ready to run. Because you're going to, you're going to be moving out that night. It is that very night. The night you eat of it is the night you will go out. And so eat it in haste with your staff in your hand, ready to go, because the time has come for deliverance. Again, I think a spiritual fulfillment in that there's a direct connection between partaking of that Passover sacrifice and the actual exodus, the moving out from the land of slavery. Slavery is sin. That night when you partake of it, you will move out and you will be free. And so a direct connection there. Now, in verses 12 and 13, God threatens the plague and then again says it's only remedy. Look at verse 12 and 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a clear statement of the sword of judgment that now hangs over Egypt. He states very clearly what it is, what is threatened. It's the plague on the firstborn. From the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the handmaid that sits at her wheel. Everybody's in danger. And so there's a, a direct threatened plague and there's only one remedy. 
None of all the magicians of Pharaoh, none of those could figure out another remedy. The Jews themselves, if they, like Cain, made up their own religion and thought of their own way to please God, it would not avail that night. God wanted one thing and one thing only. He wanted the blood of the Passover lamb. And when he saw that blood, he would pass over. If he doesn't see the blood, he does not pass over. It's really quite simple. How narrow is our God? He's a very narrow God. He's not looking for a thousand different ways of salvation here. There's going to be one. The, the Passover lamb would be sacrificed, the blood applied. When he sees the blood, he will pass over, and that's it. And so the plague is threatened. Now, it's interesting. He says, I will bring judgment on Egypt's gods. Now, he's been doing that all along, but this is a clear religious judgment here. And the final judgment, I believe, is on Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was seen to be a god. So also his offspring would be uh, the next Pharaoh, and he was a god as well. So Pharaoh's son was going to be the next ruler, and he would be seen to be God. And so he will bring a judgment on Pharaoh and on his son. He will also bring a judgment on all the underworld gods and all the dark deities of Egypt. A clear statement. And he says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, why does he say that? Do you remember what Pharaoh said when he was first confronted with the claim of God? Who is the Lord? I am the Lord. You will know me when you see what I have done. And God here is known in his wrath. He's known in his judgment, a clear connection. The God who does this, that's who I am. I am the Lord. You have a thorough education. Now, he's had an education also in God's mercy, hasn't he? Lots of patience here. We don't know how long the whole ten plagues took. But there's indication of lots of patience, even in the Passover regulation, at least two weeks. There's a lot of waiting here, a lot of patience, a lot of waiting. I am the Lord. In the end, that is my name. And you will see my glory. And you will know that I am holy. There's also a clear statement here of the connection between the blood and salvation. Between the blood and salvation. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, it's, it's very interesting. In Leviticus 17.11, I have given it to you in order to make atonement. What he's saying is, I have made a way for you to come back to me, you sinful people. There is a way. There are not 3,000 ways, but there is one way. I have given you a way. The blood is available for the atonement of your sins. And so God has made it available. There is no other way. It says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so God has ordained that there is one and there is only one way of forgiveness for us, and that is through the blood. And this is perfectly fulfilled, as John the Baptist saw prophetically in Jesus. Behold, look at him, the Lamb of God, whose blood shed on the cross atones for your sin. And, and I'm struck these days by some of these evangelical churches, hoping to be friendly to unbelievers, want to remove blood language from their hymns. They want to remove blood language from the preaching. They want to remove it from the sharing of the gospel. How can this possibly be? Leviticus 17.11 says, I have given you the blood to make atonement. There is no other way. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, there's no forgiveness. How could we ever be ashamed 
or embarrassed of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we must proclaim the blood. The blood has been poured out. It has been spilled. And no, it's not a pretty picture. It's not attractive. A dead Savior, bloody on the cross. But to me, a most beautiful sight in the world. There's never been anything as beautiful in my mind as the clear depiction of a dead Savior, his blood poured out, out of love, to save me from wrath. And so we must not be ashamed of the blood. Now, implied in this regulation, we mentioned this last time, but it's been a few weeks, and I don't want to reiterate it. Implied in this is that the firstborn of Israel deserved to die. Do you see that? Because if, if you must paint this blood over your house, or I will come and kill your firstborn, implies those firstborn deserve equally to die as compared to the Egyptian firstborn. There is no distinction, actually, except in reference to God's sovereign proclamation here that if you paint the blood on your house, I will pass over you. And so a clear indication that the firstborn of the, of the Israelites equally deserve to die. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by the sacrifice or the propitiation of Christ. We all deserve to die. Every one of us dead in our transgressions and sins. And so it says in Exodus 13, you can turn over in one, one chapter, take a look at Exodus 13. Verse 12 through 15, it says, All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not re redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, What does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Do you see that? It's very plain. The firstborn sons of Israel deserve to die that night. And God interposed the blood of the sacrificial lamb. It says in Numbers 3.13, All the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. So in other words, that night he owned or claimed the firstborn. They belong to God. Now in verses 14 through 20, it is established that this Passover would be a lasting ordinance for Israel. They would do this permanently again and again. Verse 14, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no, no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel 
whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. So first of all, we see the command that God has given, that this Passover would be a lasting ordinance. Now, we're going to see later, not this evening, but as we continue in our study, how they did not keep this Passover. And again and again in uh, Kings and Chronicles, there would be a king that would come along and would kind of reestablish the Passover because it had just fallen into disuse. But God wanted it done again and again. Every year, he wanted them to celebrate the Passover. And so it's really kind of tragic when a King Hezekiah or Josiah would come along and reestablish the Passover and it said it had not been celebrated like this since the days of David or Solomon. Very tragic in a way because it's a clear disobedience of this command. Also in this section we have very strongly emphasized the removal of yeast. Again and again, I mean it says repeated times that you're only to eat unleavened bread and you're to take all the yeast out of your house and, and anyone eats anything with yeast, they're to be cut off from their people. seems very harsh. What is this yeast that we're talking about? Well, for the most part, not universally, but for the most part in Scripture, yeast represents evil. There is one prime exception we're coming to in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like what? Yeast that a woman mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. My favorite, one of my favorite parables. A little parable that explains all of world history. That's so exciting, we could just go ahead and preach tonight on that parable. I love that parable. But I had to wade through all the commentators that said yeast is 100% evil. It's always evil, only evil, every time evil. The problem is that's not true. Even there are some other examples. For example, there are times that the priests offered leavened bread bread with yeast as an offering to God. So if yeast were only evil, then why would they offer that to God? But I will say this, that it is usually evil, represents evil. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 6, as he was talking to his disciples, he said, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Clearly that he's talking there about teaching, although because they forgot to bring bread, they thought he was talking about bread. And so they didn't get it, and they frequently didn't get it. That's a constant encouragement to me when I don't get it. But they didn't get it either. But he was talking about the spreading, permeating influence of the evil teaching, the false teaching of the, of the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. So the removal of yeast, I think, then symbolizes a break with the past. I think what it is, the whole thing with yeast is that um, every time a woman would, would make bread, she'd break off a small piece and put it aside. And then she would use that to make her next uh, loaf of leavened bread. And so it would just take a little amount and it would permeate the whole, whole dough. Well, what this implies is continuity. Basically, you know, you could be given a little amount of yeast the day you're married, and then that would be enough for the rest of your marriage. But it picks up some things along the way. And so there was this ordinance that once a year they would get rid of all the yeast out of the house. Break with the past, complete break off of continuity of the past. And this was the moment that God ordained. And why? Because they were idolatrous and wicked in Egypt. I'm talking about the Israelites. They worshiped false gods. They did evil things. They had practices that were sinful. And in effect, the yeast then became a symbol of saying, now is the time to start anew and fresh. So get rid of all the yeast, no continuity with the past. Get rid of it entirely. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, take a minute and look there if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's talking there about church discipline. And uh, I'm not going to ta teach on church discipline right now, but there's a clear connection back to the Passover regulation. 
First Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8, it says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Very important statement there. Clearly, Christ, a Passover lamb, and he has been sacrificed. He's the fulfillment of the Passover regulation. He has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread made without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. What is he saying? Go through your life as the Jewish people used to go through their house. They would look for yeast. They'd look for anything that connected with the past, the yeast, and they would get rid of it. And if anyone was found with any yeast, they were cut off from the people. So there was a great motivation to go look for it and clean it out. What, what Paul is doing is he's, in, he's f spiritually fulfilling it in this church. These are Gentiles now, the Corinthian church. He said, we need to keep the festival. How do we do it? Well, it's not a physical thing. I mean, a physical uh, Passover for us anymore. It's spiritually fulfilled in that we must go through our lives, through our heart, and through the church and get rid of the old yeast of malice and wickedness and begin anew and afresh with righteousness and truth. That's what he's saying. And so what he's saying is that evil and wicked people should not be counted among you as believers or they're going to influence, like yeast does, everything in the body. That's the logic for church discipline. And so people who are behaving like pagans and will not repent must be cut off lest they pollute the entire body. But the idea here, go back to Exodus, is that of purification, getting rid of all things that are, that are evil. Now, as I said, not everything, not all the time is yeast directly uh, evil. But the kingdom of heaven is like yeast too. And the idea is that just as bad teaching and yeast and wickedness spread, so also the kingdom can spread too. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not conquered it. We permeate, we affect one another. I am so encouraged by the statements of witnessing and the opportunities that people have. That's what we're to be. We're to kind of spread and permeate and affect our society by sharing the gospel. But uh, the Jewish people were to get rid of all the wickedness and the old connection with uh, Egypt and be ready for the Passover. We're out of time. Let's close with prayer, and God willing, we'll have time next time to pick it up. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned this evening in these 20 verses. And so grateful, O oh Lord, for the Passover regulation and for how it points ahead to Christ. Father, we pray that you would fulfill it in us, that we would be righteous and pure and clean, sustained by your spirit and your blood, that we would know what, was what the cost was of our salvation, the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would also go through our own lives and remove that old wickedness, the yeast, uh, that should not be there any longer, and that we would be free and pure and ready to serve you uh, as those who have been made new by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please? <clears throat> We've been reminded that Christ is our Redeemer. He is he's the fulfillment of those prophecies and of the, of the sacrifices done in the Old Testament. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We are not to be ashamed of the blood, but rather glory in it. Amen? Let's sing this new song about glorying in our Redeemer.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.